It's actually normally the, the case where I would take a, a chapter from Scripture or a passage of it and uh, go through it and preach that. Uh, as those of you who are um, regularly here or members here of Melville, uh, I've been going through the first letter of Timothy. Uh, I'll be doing that this afternoon, and instead we'll be going to what I'd normally be doing in the, uh, in the afternoon service, and that is that we'll be going through a particular doctrine, a particular teaching uh, from Scripture, uh, making use of our Heidelberg Catechism, and we're going through the Apostles' Creed, and at this time we're, we're dealing with the ascension into heaven. But, but on this, this Sunday, as we go through this, what I really want us to do is actually just take a step back and just have a more of a, of a, of a, of a bird's-eye view of, of Scripture and of what it means to, to come into the presence of God. And so I'll be taking some of the broader themes of Scripture with respect to that as, as I teach this to you uh, in, this, in this sermon. Uh, we've already read from Exodus chapter 19, uh, I ask you now to turn your Bibles and we'll read together from the New Testament from Hebrews chapter 10. After that, we'll be going straight into our uh, reading of the Catechism and in the sermon as well. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 11 to 25. This is in the New Testament, where there is also reflection in here about um, how those Old Testament uh, signs and, and, uh, and, and festivals and sacrifices and so from the priesthood, how that all pointed to Jesus Christ. We're going to read now from chapter 10, beginning at verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, for after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. And I'll put their laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So far the reading from God's holy word. I'd like to ask you also then to turn in your, your book of praise. And we're going to read together from the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the confessions of our church here in Melville. Uh, the Catechism uh, it was written at the time of the Reformation, back in the 1500s, and is a, uh, a clear uh, explanation and teaching uh, that we hold to with respect to what the, the Scriptures teaches concerning uh, the, the Christian faith. And Lord's Day number 18 is dealing with that part of the Apostles' Creed, Christ's ascension into heaven. This is on page 532 in your book of praise. Let's just read this together. What do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, 
and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world as he has promised? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth. But with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all, <clears throat> for his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. <coughs> so it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. Question 49. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his Father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. And third, he sends us his spirit as a counter-pledge, by whose power we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and not the things that are on earth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look forward to the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and just before we celebrate, I will be reminding you not to cling to the outward symbols of bread and wine. In other words, not just simply to think about the bread and the wine which is here, but instead to, to lift up your hearts on high in heaven, where Christ our advocate is, at the right hand of his heavenly Father. And that's because when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we have communion, we're having communion with Him. And this morning, I really want you to think about that. I want you to think just how incredible and how wonderful it is that, that when you eat this little piece of bread, you take that little sip of wine, that you're having communion with God Himself. And through the celebration, the Lord is assuring you that not only are your sins forgiven, but that through Jesus Christ, who is our risen and resurrected Lord, through Jesus Christ, we are once more fit to live in the presence of God. That's what I wish to draw your attention to this morning. And as we turn to God's Word, as we read it together, and also the, the broader uh, themes in Scripture, which I'll be pulling out, as we also read from Lord's Day 18 uh, concerning the essential Lord Jesus Christ, I want us to reflect on what God has done to restore us, to receive us back into His presence, so that we might once more live as His people. And so I'll preach God's word to you under, the, under this theme. The bodily ascension of Christ guarantees that we are once more fit to live in the presence of God. The bodily ascension of Christ guarantees that we are once more fit to live in the presence of God. Now, from the beginning, God wished to be with us. Uh, at the beginning, He created the man and the woman in His image. And we understand it also to mean that, uh, that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, that they were truly righteous and they were truly holy, and so they could live with Him. They could have communion with Him. And then the Lord placed the man and the woman in a garden, and it was called the Garden of Eden. A special, special place, paradise. 
And, and, and Eden, the Garden of Eden was a beautiful place. It had lovely fruit trees. It had rivers. It, had, um, uh, it even had gold and, and, and minerals and so forth there as well. But the most beautiful thing about the Garden of Eden was the perfect relationship between God and his creation. In paradise, Adam and Eve, being perfectly righteous and holy, they were fit to live in the presence of God. God had full fellowship with them. And their communion with him was full. And it was complete. For those of you who know that story of the Bible well, you know how suddenly all things changed. As soon as Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then, then sin entered into the world and their relationship with God was destroyed. It was broken. And then when the man heard, the man, the woman, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, in the cool of the day, it says they were afraid. God was no longer the one that they could live with. And so instead of coming to him, they ran from him and they hid. They were no longer holy. They could no longer come close to holy God uh, the way that they wished. And so the Lord, the Lord spoke to them, and then Genesis chapter 3 speaks about the punishment which he gave to them. And then he also sent them out of the garden. And the clear message here was that they could no longer live in his presence. In fact, it says in Genesis 3 verse 24 that when the Lord sent them out of the garden, it says, and so the Lord drove out the man. He drove him out. He said, that's it. You cannot be here. And then what God did is that he placed these, these cherubim, which are angelic beings. Uh, uh, they, they were there with his flaming swords. And they were there to defend the holiness of God and to say to Adam and Eve, you cannot come back into this garden. You cannot come back into the presence of holy God. And so God is separate from unholy man. And in and of themselves, the man, the woman, they had no way to come back to God. And that's how it would have been forever, except for the fact that what we couldn't do, God has done for us. And this is, the, this is, the, this is what the Bible is all about. This is what the gospel is all about. And, and it speaks about that in, the, in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. But the point there, as, as the Apostle Paul says here, through Jesus we have obtained access, access back to God. This is the great theme of the Bible, how God's made this possible. And this morning, I, I just want us to think about this and to learn once again of just how the Bible shows us and how God himself um, provided that way of access for us to come to him, that we might have communion with him. And as you go through the Bible, you see that this is a progressive thing. How over time, God was able to come closer and closer to his people as that wondrous history of redemption was unfolding. First thing we learn about in the book of Genesis is how God had communion with his people in special holy places on the ground, the places where altars were made. Uh, the very first time we hear about sacrifices already with Cain and Abel. But the first time we hear about an altar being made, although they would have been made before that, was with Noah after the flood. But then when you get to Genesis chapter 12 and following, when God calls Abram, he calls Abram and he says, I want to make you my special people. And I'm going to give you a special land, the land of Canaan. And this is where I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. 
And then what we learn here is that right there from the beginning, the first thing which Abram did when he came into the land of Canaan, this is Genesis 12, he built an altar to the Lord. And then as you follow Abram in his wanderings around the land of Canaan, when he stopped for some time, he, he built an altar. And then he also went back to those same altars where he would also once again have sacrifices with the Lord and where he would have communion with him in that way. So what is an altar? Well, an altar is it's, it's really a simple structure built of earth or stone. Uh, actually, we, we stopped our reading in chapter 20 of Exodus 20, but if we had carried on, we would have seen here that God had also described there how they were to make these altars. Uh, but it was to be a very simple build, a simple thing. And, and it was a place was, which marked where God would be there and dwell with his people, be in his, their presence. Uh, altars could not be built wherever people just wanted to build them. But they had to be very careful in following God's instructions, both in where they were to be placed and how they were to be made. And God said that he would actually choose a place where his name would ultimately be honored. And we know that place is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so the, the altar, that place there, it was a holy place set apart from the rest of creation. And this is where God chose to meet with his people, have communion with them, and assure them of forgiveness and assure them of his blessing. And so if you think about that then, these altars, already then, this was a picture of God's amazing grace. You know, it's a world of sin. God had driven the man and the woman out of Eden, because, but I still want to have communion with you. And so these altars are a picture really of, of Emmanuel, of, of God with us. But that wasn't where God had planned it to end. These altars were really just the beginning. And that's why the Lord called Abram out of, uh, out of, of his own place. And he brought them to Canaan. Later on, Abram's descendants went to Egypt. There were slaves there. But then we picked up the story in Exodus chapter 19. Because there God had taken the people, his people, out of Egypt and was bringing them into the promised land, the land of Israel, whereas God said, and I will be there with you and I will live with you there. So this is what God had promised. And then on the way, he brought them to his holy mountain, to Mount Sinai. Uh, previously, God had met with Abram here too, with, with Moses, sorry, here at the burning bush. And then Exodus chapter 19, we read this, verse 5 and 6. It says here, where God had said to him, um, and he said to the people there, he said, Now therefore, therefore, now obey my voice. Sorry, chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And this is this, and you shall become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so this is what God told his people. And then he told them that for three days they had to prepare themselves, make themselves clean and holy so that they could, they could meet with the Lord. This is when God was going to give the Ten Commandments. But what happens then when God comes down from Mount Sinai? What happens when he gives these Ten Commandments to the people of Israel? Well, we read about this. We hear about thunder, thick cloud covering the mountain, very loud trumpet blast. Mount Sinai is covered in smoke. The Lord is descending upon it in His glory. And all this smoke and all this fire is really hiding something of God's glory. Because if He came in His fullness of His glory, then everybody would have been wiped out on the spot. But even then, as God was on that mountain, He warned the people to stay away from Him. They could not come close. 
Uh, chapter 19, verse uh, 20 and 21. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses at the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. And the people themselves are afraid. And they tell Moses to, to let God speak to him, rather than directly to them. Because they're all scared that if God kept speaking to them, they're going to die. So what I want you to understand is that even though... Even though God had come into this Mount Sinai in a manner which was, it was covered in smoke, in the midst of thick darkness, and even though all Israel, they remained off the mountain, they still got such a sense of the holiness of God that they realized they could not approach Him in this sinful state. Yet they heard the Ten Commandments and it convicted them of their wrong. God was determined to have that communion with his people. And he was determined that this communion with his people would indeed increase. And so no longer would he only occasionally meet with his people at an altar. It's not even enough that he was going to meet them at Mount Sinai in this once-off event in the way that he did. But he would plan to be with his chosen people all the time. And so what he did at that time, he, said, he commanded Moses, he said, I want you to build a tent. We call it a tabernacle. So that he, holy God, would have his house. He could live with his people, even travel with them, going through the wilderness. And so they built this tabernacle, this tent. And in this tabernacle, you had various rooms, a couple of rooms. And then you had this, this most holy place, which was at the end of this tabernacle. Had a very thick curtain, a veil, which, which um, blocked off this most holy place from the rest of the temple. And the tabernacle, I should say. And then within this most holy place, there was this, this golden box. They called it an ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And above this golden box, there were these two cherubim. And remember, I mentioned this cherubim who were there blocking people away from uh, Adam and Eve, away from the Garden of Eden. Now we have this cherubim on this ark also to protect God's holiness. And the Bible says that God dwelt with his people there in the midst of these two cherubim. Above the mercy seat. That's where he would be with a special way amongst his people. And so it was a real blessing for God's people to have this, 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 this physical assurance of God's presence with them, even though he was behind this curtain, so to speak, and there was still that separation between him and, his, and the people of Israel. He was as close, much closer than they could ever have imagined that he could be. But of course, that wasn't the end. And this isn't where God had made it, meant it to end when it comes to communion. God intended to have more. And so, and so when... He brought his people into the promised land, into Israel. He, he said, I'm going to mark a special place where I will be. And that special place was ultimately it became Mount Zion, which is the mountain where you've got the city of Jerusalem. And then on Mount Zion, uh, in the days of Solomon, he had a, a permanent house, a temple built for him. And then also speaks about God through his, in the cloud of presence entering into that temple at that time. But even there, we know that these are simply shadows and, and hints of what is to come. And, the, and the, the, the letter to the Hebrews speaks about this again and again, that all of the, the Old Testament sacrifices and everything which is going on here, this is really just a, 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 a shadow of what's going to happen. And so what God had indeed planned is that he would truly have that Emmanuel God with us in the sending of his own son, Jesus Christ. And really, this is the culmination 
of God coming to be with His people. And John 1 verse 14 says, with respect to Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Actually, in the Hebrew, sorry, in the Greek, sorry. Actually, and he, and he tabernacled amongst us. He dwelt amongst us. And then it says, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And now, of course, the need for that temple is almost over. Jesus, our true Emmanuel, is God with us. He'd come to put an end uh, to, uh, the, to sin and so that we can now boldly come into the throne room in the presence of God. And therefore, when our Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross and He suffered for our sin and He suffered also that rejection from God, that eternal rejection, when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When He had carried that price... At the end of that suffering, he said, it is finished. And then we know that the curtain in that temple, it got separated and it was torn so that the holy, most holy places opened up. It's finished because the Lamb of God has been sacrificed in the altar once for all because sin has been atoned for and God can, can live with His people and He can have full communion with His people. And that sin which has been there, this is taken away in and through Jesus Christ. But even that's not all, because we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead, but He rose again. And then we also know that this Jesus, who is true God and true man, He's no longer here on earth, but He not only rose again on the third day, but 40 days after, He ascended into heaven. And that was the catechism lesson that we're having also today with this. He ascended into heaven, physically and bodily, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And so Jesus Christ, whom the Bible speaks about as being flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones, He physically and bodily went up into the sky and He's taken into heaven. And so in Jesus Christ, true human flesh and blood is now in heaven and seated at the right hand of God. And that teaches us that the debt has been paid in full. The way is fully open for us who are dead in sin to stand before the throne of holy God. And the physical presence of our flesh in heaven, in Jesus Christ, is a sure pledge or a promise or a guarantee that Jesus' work has been completed. The way is open for us as God's children to live in God's holy presence. And that's what the letter to the Hebrews is all about. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 23, I'll just read that again then. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what are we going to do? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, with our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because He who promised is faithful." This is an incredible thing for us to comprehend. Therefore, since Jesus done this, and since He is there now in heaven at the right hand of God, let us with boldness draw near to the throne room of God. Remember Israel back in Mount Sinai, so afraid of the glory of God, trembling. Remember Adam and Eve already in the Garden of Eden, hiding from Him. Remember how previously God had said, no, I need to have have." 
boundaries in place so that you don't get too close to our holiness, my holiness. And now we're told, boldly come into my presence. This is an incredible thing for us to comprehend. You see, one of the things that still continues to bother us, what should do, is that the closer we come into the throne room of God and the more we see God's holiness and His greatness and His awesomeness and His beauty, the more we recognize our own sin and that in and of ourselves that we are not worthy. And then we begin to wonder, how could such a holy God look upon a sinner such as me? If I come before the presence of God, what's going to stop him from blocking me off and rejecting me from his presence and so that I cannot actually go to him after all? What's going to stop him from driving me away from the throne of God? Because he is holy and I am not. And then we remember that Jesus is there bodily, in person, in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And that is this, so that we will not be blocked off. That we, we, we will have access. And we can always come before God and come before His throne. And we are fit to live in the presence of God. No, not because we're suddenly holy. Not because we've suddenly done it all ourselves. And not because God ignores our sin as such, and says it doesn't matter after all, but because our sin is paid for in Jesus Christ and because our sin is placed on Him and because His righteousness is placed upon us and God looks upon us in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but, but I trust that for you too, you will see this as, one, as, as just really the most incredible thing. You could hardly imagine this is true. And God knows that. And He knows how quickly we'll be wondering, but, but really? Really? You know, in those darkest times of our lives, in those times of our lives when we feel the, the weight of our wrong and our failings and our sin and the mess of our lives, is it really true that I can come before God and He's going to see, take me? Not those other people who seem so good and righteous and holy and everything, but me. And this is why God's given to us the Lord's Supper. He's given to us that table of communion. He's instituted to this to teach us that even though Jesus is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we have full and open communion with him. And I'd like you to understand then that this simple meal, this communion that we have here in church. It's over in an instant. I'd like you to understand that this Lord's Supper is so much better and so much richer than the communion experienced by Old Testament people around those altars, on Mount Sinai, in the tabernacle, even in the temple. But even this, even the Lord's Supper as we have it today, this isn't it either. But this is also just a shadow, just a promise of what is to come. 
This is nothing but a foretaste of what is promised when we sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Because it's when Jesus returns and when the dead shall be raised that we shall bodily come into the presence of our holy God. And then as God's children, we will enjoy the fullness of His glory. You see, in the past, God lived with His people in Adam, in Adam and Eve in Eden. In the past, He met with His, with, with, with the, with his people at his, these little places where, where altars were made. In the past, He, he dwelt with, with the, the people of Israel, His covenant people in a tent, and then later on in the house, in the temple. And then, yes, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself came to dwell among us. But now Christ is in heaven. And in Him we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge and a guarantee that our communion with God has been restored. And therefore, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, let's not cling with our, to these outward symbols of bread and wine as if this is all it is. But let's lift up our hearts on high in heaven where Christ our advocate is at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. But even as we do that, we look forward to something that's even more. Because as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look forward to the final culmination of all things when paradise is restored. We look forward to the time when Jesus Christ returns from the dead, when, he, when, and when the dead will be raised, and when we'll see Him face to face. And then we'll see that, yeah, it's just like it was back in Eden, in the Garden of Paradise, but it's going to be better then we'll see that the Garden of Eden has been transformed into the new Jerusalem. And then we'll be there with our Lord and we'll be seated physically, bodily. We'll be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The curse will be gone and our communion with God will be complete. Amen.